Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including house churches, gathering times, and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Rob Basham. Morning, church family. Good morning to those of you joining us on live stream. We're glad that you are here this morning. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here at Sam Alliance. I'm glad you're here this morning. We're continuing in our series, Kingdom Come. We've been working through these parables in the book of Matthew in chapter 13. And last week, we had an opportunity to talk through the parable of the pearl and the hidden treasure. And it was really interesting. After, after service ended, I went home and I was scrolling through and I saw on the news there was a couple in Cape May, New Jersey. They went out for dinner, and the gentleman is eating his oysters and bites into something hard and discovers an eight-millimeter pearl that is worth over $10,000. And I was just like, that's so appropriate right now. That's unbelievable. And it's just funny. Sometimes treasure, we just discover it. We come across it, and we talked about how we just can ascribe value to different things, especially sometimes that can be difficult, how you ascribe value to art, or we were talking about how you could eventually ascribe value to the incredible worth that the kingdom of God is to us. But I, I had uh, curated an artist, put together a, a little picture of Brian Candela with uh, Efren's mustache, and if you remember, we were going to auction that off to the highest bidder, and we raised well over $100 for Great Expectations, and this sweet couple came to pick up their new mantelpiece. And so I just want to show you, this is the couple that outbid everybody. So uh, Steve, Steve texted me. He said, whatever the highest bid is, I'll beat it. Just let me know. And so uh, he came in. And so Steve and Trina, our former lead couple, they, uh, they, that, that's now hanging in their living room. And uh, I, I got to spend some time with Steve. He sends his greetings. He's doing great. He put over 1,300 miles on his car last week visiting churches in the Pacific Northwest, bringing encouragement to them. And so we just celebrate what he is up to these days, and it's a good time. When I was in eighth grade, our eighth grade class had the opportunity to take a class trip to Washington, D.C., as many eighth grade graders get to do. And I'll never forget that trip. It was incredible just seeing all the monuments and everything. And I'll remember one of the places we went as well was the, the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. And I remember finishing the tour, and I was just, wow, this is a huge church. This is so different than what I'm used to. And walking out, and I remember we're waiting for the bus to pick us up and take us to the next monument. And I look up, and there's all these gargoyles. Gargoyles fascinate me. I remember taking a look and, and, and seeing, seeing, seeing one that looked just like this. It was like, that's just weird. Like, why, why are these on a church building? And over the last couple of years, I've started to do some more research on gargoyles. Gargoyles also serve, they're, they're actually water spouts connected to the gutter. So this is actually a water spout. And then sometimes you'll see, you'll see what is a gargoyle that is not connected to a water spout. Those are called grotesques. Here's two grotesques from the cathedral in, in Notre Dame in Paris. And I remember visiting there and seeing so many of these all over the church. And it's interesting, in America, you know, the National Cathedral we have here, they went a little bit whimsical as well. And so when they created the gargoyles, they had some funny ones. They went, they went more whimsical. There's this one. There's a, another one with Darth Vader. Uh, you know, this is probably the most famous one there in that cathedral. But gargoyles, it's, it's strange. We put these weird, grotesque-looking things on the outside of a spiritual, holy place. And as I began to study some scholars, they say, oh, it's, it's there to ward off evil, which just never sat well with me because we're the people of God. We don't need to scare off evil with a 
statue. We say the name of Jesus and evil must flee. And I began researching more and gargoyles, they actually predate the church. You'll see them in ancient Egypt. You'll see them in different places in society. And I found it really interesting. And then I found a couple of scholars that said they were actually put there among the early church because it was a reminder for the people of God as they enter the holy sanctuary that out there evil exists. That out there good and evil coexist. They co-mingle. And, and I began to read more and it began to make sense. When we gather in here, this is a place where it, it is our hope that evil doesn't exist, where heaven touches earth. But when we go out there, it coexists. And if you remember a, a couple of weeks ago, Jennifer spoke on the parable of the wheat and the weeds and how good and evil coexist. They co-mingle. And today we're going to continue to talk about this. You see, in this series, The Kingdom Come, we've been talking about the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's happening. He was saying it to the first century Palestinian Jew, and he's saying it to us today. It is here. It is going forth. For weeks now, we've been defining the kingdom of God as the society in which God's will is done. It's this exciting, powerful thing. God's rule and reign is going forward during this current church age, and we're part of it on earth as it is in heaven. And yet every sermon, you hear me add a qualifier, a qualifier that says it's happening, but it won't be fully realized until Christ returns. It won't be fully realized until Jesus comes and makes things right. We live in the already, but the not yet. The victory has been won. It's been secured, but it hasn't fully played out. We're in that in-between time. For me, it leads to a pretty big question. If heaven is coming to earth as we pray, and this is the society in which God's will is being done and, and unveiled why is there so much bad? Why is there so much bad? Why doesn't the, earth, the heavenly king sort out his earthly realm quicker in the now? Because I look around and I see pervasive evil, hatred, division, death, work that is toilsome. toilsome. And I say, God, where are you? Why are you not sorting more of this out? It's our cry for many of us this week as we see what's happening in Ukraine, as we see the fighting continue and we say, God, sort it out. Bring your justice. Church, in our parable today, I believe that this is addressed. I believe that the parable of the net tells us this. In the proper time, he, King Jesus, will sort it all out. He will sort it out. It's going to be an actual, literal sorting, a separation of the good from the bad. And it, in that sorting, in that separation, it will be sorted out. Things will be made the way they were intended to be, and justice will reign. Our parable today is found again in Matthew 13. It's verses 47 to 50. I'll put it on the screen. You're welcome to look there in your Bibles or on your app. This is what it reads. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. When the net was full, they dragged it up onto the shore, sat down, and sorted the good fish into crates, 
but threw the bad ones away. That is the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. In many ways here, Jesus is retelling the parable of the wheat and the weeds that Jennifer spoke on a few weeks ago. Both talk of a gathering and the separation. Both speak of the end of the age and discarding the bad into a fiery furnace. I find it interesting, just like last week when we had these two twin parables, one, the treasure and and, and the the pearl, today we have these two twin parables again, the wheat and the weeds and the parable of the net. Again, they're twin parables, but they're fraternal twins. There's so much that's similar, and yet they're also different. You see, the parable of the wheat and the weeds speaks more to the idea that good and bad will coexist in this current world, where this parable, the parable of the net, talks more of the separation and an age to come, the future age. Many turn this parable into and preach it as a proclamation of Jesus is giving us to tell the world of his truth. And of course, we need to do this, but many say that the net is the church and we, the disciples of Christ, are the fishermen. And I see where those parallels can be made. I mean, when Jesus calls his disciples, he calls them to be fishers of men, but it seems that that's not true to the text here. Because Jesus himself tells his disciples what it means. And he says that the net is judgment and the fishermen are the angels who will do a separation. The parable of the net is about the future. What will happen at the time of Christ's return. This parable speaks of the final judgment in the day when we will no longer need gargoyles to remind us that evil exists because it won't. It won't. N.T. Wright says this, he says, history isn't going around in circles. All of history is moving towards a final end, towards the time when God's kingdom of justice and righteousness, wholeness, peace, and love will finally be complete. This is our hope, church. It will be at that time when every knee really will bow down before the God of heaven and earth. It will be a time when people from all times and places will gather around the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is the hope of heaven. Today, I want to take us through this parable, and I want to go through kind of just a grid that I've gone through a couple times, this idea that we behold, we believe, and we behave. It's this idea that we behold who God is. We believe what he says will happen, that it will happen, and out of that, in response to that, comes our behavior. You see, when we go in that order, it, it avoids legalism. It avoids condemnation. With regards to this parable, if you start with our behavior and go the other direction, you might have a view of God that sees him as coercive, of forcing your will, forcing your hand, and that's not who he is. And so we start with the beholding, and we work towards a response of worship, our behavior. And so the first thing I see here is we behold our God. He is patient. In his mercy, he is not rushed. He's not rushed. 
While his angels are the ones carrying out the separation, we we know that it's God who sits on the throne. He's the caretaker. He's the protector. He is the one, the ultimate judge. As we question that evil and good co-mingle in this world, we recognize that the only reason that's allowed to still happen is because of the patience of the king. It's what we looked at a couple of weeks ago with the parable of the wheat and the weeds. It's what we look at again here. 2 Peter 3 makes it abundantly clear. It says the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for our sake. He wants no one to be destroyed, but everyone to repent. Peter makes it incredibly clear. He says our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. It's why he's patient. His timing, he's in no rush. The Australian theologian Alan Brown says this. Says human rulers don't have this kind of patience. Mortal rulers only have a brief time to impose their will. The one who reigns forever is in no hurry to force his subjects into submission, to make them behave. He's waiting for the harvest to grow in his field. He tolerates the weeds rather than damage the wheat. His mustard seed is still growing into the tree that fills the whole world. Like yeast working through the dough, his kingdom is still rising. These twin parables remind us that in our current world, the good fish swim with the bad. It's the reality we're living in in the now. Good and evil are commingling. Because of this, there's pain. Because of this, there is suffering. Because of this, there are people in Ukraine sheltered in basements right now. There's hurt. But church, the message here is that we can rest assured because this parable makes it abundantly clear that in proper time, he will sort it out. And that's where we move from beholding to believing because we believe it will be as he says, justice one day will reign. Justice one day will reign. This is what we believe. In order order for the ultimate society in which God's will is to be done, to be fully realized, justice must reign. The parable of the net reminds us that the coexistence of good and bad will cease. Evil will get what it deserves. Notice here in this passage that we, the good fish, are not just rescued out. There's no rescue mission. The angels don't grab the good fish and take them away to some new place. No. They deal with the bad flesh. They obliterate evil so goodness can reign, so justice can reign, and it is all sorted out. You see, that this is how it would play out was not something radical for a first century Jew awaiting a Messiah to expect. This is what they expected would happen, that evil would be excluded from the kingdom of God, from the kingdom of heaven. Any Jew hoping for the kingdom would believe this. Jesus here, speaking to his disciples, is affirming. He's telling them, he's confirming to them that this present kingdom that I am setting up is what you're expecting. Someday evil will be gone, and it will happen. It's what the church has believed since its inception. The Nicene Creed says this, He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will have no end. Our own creed here among the Alliance churches says this, our statement of faith, there shall be a bodily resurrection of the just and the unjust. 
For the former, a resurrection unto life. For the latter, a resurrection unto judgment. Church family, we believe here at Sam Alliance that those that have repented and been cleansed from their sin have put their faith in Christ because of his atoning work will one day be united to him and spend eternity as co-heirers in his sorted out eternal kingdom. It's heaven. Those who didn't take the opportunity will be separated from Christ without hope, living eternity in regret. This is known as hell, a place, church, that we believe does exist. The details of what it looks like might be debated, but from this parable, we see that it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, likely not a literal picture, but rather a phrase that was often used in the day to express sorrow, remorse, anxiety, and great pain. Church, ultimately, this parable is about the fate of the catch. What happens to the good fish and more so what happens to the bad fish? And as as unpopular as it might be to talk about this in our culture today, let me not mince words here and stay true to our text. The parable of the net tells us that separation is coming. Justice will be realized and judgment Israel. Those that don't acquire the treasure, the accessible, valuable treasure that we talked about last week will experience everlasting regret. And those that do will realize the value of the decision that they made. A just and pure kingdom will be established. A place where there will be no more crying, where there will be no more pain, where there will be no toil in work, where there will be no war, where the gargoyles will be relegated to a museum of worship that reminds us that evil has been fully eradicated. It's what St. Peter speaks of in his his letter in in 2 Peter 3. It says, we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earths that have been promised to us, a world filled with God's righteousness. Many of you have been going through our Bible study curriculum, and many of you will go through it this week. Our team wrote a beautiful prayer that I would like to share with you this morning because it confirms what we believe about our King. Jesus, your judgments are perfect. Your authority is trustworthy. Your justice is comprehensive. Your righteousness is unequaled. Your warnings are loving. Your words are truthful. Your mercy is incomparable. Your invitation all-encompassing. Your help is reliable. Your safety, it's sure. Your rewards are beyond generous. I celebrate your reign, King Jesus. Amen. Church, this is what we believe. And with this comes our response, a challenge to how we act and respond to it, our worship. This is the behave piece. From belief to behavior. Before I share, uh, well, one of the ways that we need to behave is we need to be ready. And how I believe we need to be ready is through a, a level of repentance and by remaining. By remaining. We are ready by repenting and remaining. Two, three weeks ago, as I began to prepare for this message, I started to look at commentaries. And I, I read the scripture and I was like, oh, gosh. This is not going to be an easy one. And I just stumbled upon a quote that I want to share with you. 
the second half of which I will put on the screen. The gospel can and should offend our flesh and pride and sin. It would be concerning if it didn't. It is a message of humility and sacrifice and surrender and grace, which are in total contradiction to human nature. At the same time, the gospel is powerful enough to overcome any offense, to soften, to mend, and touch hearts. Its purpose is to drive us to repentance and transformation. And here's, it is not our job to tone down the gospel so it doesn't offend. When we do that, we diminish its beauty. We undermine the power of the greatest story ever lived and told. It is our job to uphold the gospel message in its purest form and entrust God with the rest. Friends, I've read this quote every day this week as I've prepared to deliver this word. The gospel is the good news. It drives us to repentance and transformation. Why? Because in the proper time, it will all be sorted out. And when it is, friends, we want to be found to be good fish. Some translations talk about the righteous and the wicked. And I want to pause here and talk about how fish are categorized. What constitutes a good fish and what constitutes a bad fish? Because culture and philosophy and even the church have given us so many different perspectives on this. If you leave here and you talk to coworkers or classmates or, or family or whoever, your neighbors, you are going to get differing perspectives on what makes a good fish and what constitutes a bad fish. Some will tell you that when all is said and done, if the good actions outweigh the bad, that means it's a good fish. Some will tell you, how can we know this? How dare we even uh, decide what makes a good fish or a bad fish? Some will come at it in a more legalistic manner and say the people that check off the boxes of attending church and reading their Bible and tithing and praying often, they clearly are the good fish. Some will say, you just know. There's a variety of answers, and many of them hold levels of truth. Some show God's grace. Some are misinformed and think that we can earn somehow becoming a good fish. But briefly, I want to share with you what Scripture says. Because it says that good fish are simply right with God. They're justified, just as if they never sinned. And if we look straight at Scripture, particularly Romans 3, we see what constitutes a good fish. It reads, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Christ Jesus. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For we've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of sin. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. And people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. A good fish believes that Jesus sacrificed his life for them. With repentance and the declaration of this, with a commitment to surrender, to a surrender of allegiance to come under his rule and reign, to declare him as king, 
When someone does this, a fish becomes good. And friends, the choice is ours. C.S. Lewis says it so well in his book, The Great Divorce. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, your will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. Church family, once the repentance happens, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It begins a sanctifying work in our life where spirit gives us power. He gives us joy to respond and live lives of worship to him. We're given the frameworks of what a spirit-filled person looks like, the fruits of the spirit. And if you're here this morning and you have put and made him king of your life, the call for you this morning is to continue to remain, to remain until the day that he does return and sort it out, remain. John 15, 4 says, remain in me and I will remain in you. A branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. And so how are you doing remaining? A great litmus test for that, I believe, is to ask someone this question or ask yourself this question. Where do you see the fruit of the Spirit, especially joy in my life? I encourage you this week to have that conversation with a spouse, with a friend, the most scary, with your kids. Church, there's ways that we remain, and some of you already know that you need to up your game. And even during worship, when we go back to worship, you might want to come to the altar, but one of the ways that we remain is by developing rhythms, spiritual formative rhythms in our lives. This week, we just celebrated. We just celebrated Ash Wednesday. Lent has begun. Some of you might not even be aware of that, but can I encourage you to engage with Lent this year and every year? 40 days leading up to Easter, what might God be asking you to give up in a way to honor him and just make sure that he is in the center? We have a Lent prayer guide that's available online. If you go to our social media, if you go to our website, it's there. Consider engaging with that this year. Another spiritually formative rhythm is coming to church. You're doing it right now. Come consistently. It moves it from an individual thing to a collective deal. We are all in this together. A reminder of who God is as we proclaim, as we worship together. Can I encourage you to come? Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the work that you did on the cross. We thank you that we have access to you, that the veil has been torn in Jesus' name. Lord, we come and we look at your word today and we realize that one day we will all be caught up in this net and one day a sorting out will happen, that justice will reign. It hasn't happened because we declare you are a merciful God. But Lord, you have made it accessible to us. So Lord, I just bless this community here today. I bless my brothers and sisters watching at home. Lord, if you are doing a work in anyone, if you are calling them out from darkness into the light, Lord, I pray that you would speak now. 
that those of us in this room, that if you are nudging anyone, Lord, that you would fill them, that they would just experience your grace. And I pray that this moment would involve movement, that you would draw them to the cross where they can put their allegiance in you. And for those of us that declare that you are our king, Lord, as we examine ourselves, as we declare who you are, Lord, would you teach us what it means to remain? We declare that you are a good king in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.